0: So good evening, and so for this third evening of the retreat, I'd like to give a talk um, on the topic of emotions and thoughts. And it's kind of an extended instructions on how to practice, be mindful of emotions and the process of thinking. And in particular to do it through uh, the perspective or the framework of what's known as the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. So in a sense, this talk could be titled uh, Emotions, Thoughts, and the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Uh, For those of you who uh, don't know, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness uh, uh, are four areas that the Buddha talked about for cultivating and developing a mindfulness for the purposes of becoming free. For the purposes, it clearly, explicitly says, for the purpose of overcoming all distress, and for attaining freedom, and um, and those four uh, areas that the Buddha talked about were described in a discourse called the Four Discourse and the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, and all streams of Vipassana practice uh, originate from this one discourse. So it's a very important teaching for us, and. Um, The four foundations of mindfulness are, uh, the first is the body, so mindfulness of the body. And within that, this particular foundation is included instructions on mindfulness of breathing. The second foundation is mindfulness of what sometimes is called feeling tone that Sharda talked about this morning. And um, this is whether, th- that aspect of our experience has to do with whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. Uh, the feeling tone, the head, some people call it the hedonic tone. And then the third foundation is mental states. It's called chitta citta, is the Pali word. And it's, uh, it's kind of the, the overall quality of the mind, the overall uh, gestalt mood, uh, state in which the mind is in, in, a state of mind, as opposed to particular functionings of mind. And then the the um, fourth is the foundation uh, has the title is the foundation of mindfulness of dharma's, dhammas, and this has to do very simplistically, maybe most easily say, it has to do with looking at our experience through particular teachings the Buddha gave that have to do with either keep that what keeps us enslaved in bondage and attachment or what helps liberate us. So it's looking at our experience through particular processes of the mind that have to, those processes have to do with um, clinging or suffering and those that have to do with f- liberation or freedom from suffering. So four foundations of mindfulness, body, feeling tone, states of mind, and dharmas. Um, now, when we give instructions for mindfulness here at Spirit Rock, uh, like, like we're doing for you in the retreat, it's fairly common for the instructions to go, well, first day instructions on the breath, the second day or soon thereafter, instructions on mindfulness of the body, followed by mindfulness of emotion, followed by mindfulness of thinking. Occasionally, like uh, Sharda this morning, they'll slip in some teachings about the feeling tone very occasionally someone might devote a whole morning instructions to the feeling tone, but sometimes the feeling tone, the second foundation, maybe hardly gets any mention on the retreat. So people hear breath, body, emotions, and thoughts. Some people then assume that the, three, the four foundations of mindfulness that the Buddha taught are breath, body, emotions, and thoughts. But they're not. Um, they're, they're something, you know, they're two different set, sets of lists. So then the fair question is, how is it that these two lists interact? How do they work together? The Buddha emphasized the four foundations of mindfulness, the spirit rock teachers emphasize, (laughs) you know, these other four, Mm -hmm. Uh, the four foundations of spirit rock. (laughs) And um, and so that's a little bit the topic for today. If we look at, um, you know, the discourse, as I said earlier, the emphasis is liberation, becoming free. If we look at our own minds, chances are, if you look at what you get caught in, if you look at your suffering, ways you get attached in ways that are painful, chances are that very closely connected or if not at the heart of that detachment is either emotions or thoughts, emotions or stories, emotions or um, ideas that we have. And, um, and one, of the things, one of the things, the process of becoming free, we have to learn how to become free in relationship to emotions, in relationship to our thoughts, our ideas, our concepts, our stories that we have. And so the task of mindfulness practice is to learn us how to become free in relationship to those things. It doesn't necessarily mean we have to become free of them, the fact that we n- never have any emotions at all anymore or never have any thoughts again once you know done with that, thank you. But rather uh, uh, we can still have them but we we're not liable to be caught by them, be stuck by them, be obsessed by them, be oppressed by them. We're free in relationship to them. So, um, uh, So one of the investigations that are very helpful in mindfulness is to learn how to investigate the ecology of thinking and of emotions. So we can understand them better and in the process understand ourselves better and understand how to become free. Freedom is such an important uh, word or concept or goal for Buddhism, it warrants a little bit discussion of what freedom means. Because uh, for here and in, in, uh, I think in modern America, certainly in some circles, uh, where freedom is also very highly regarded it tends to be uh, in the form of freedom to do. So the freedom to vote, the freedom for, uh, to speech, the freedom to bear arms, the freedom to own property, uh, the freedom to shop. You know, There's a variety of things that Americans want to be free to do. Um, the, um, the emphasis in Buddhism is not to be free to do something, that's not the emphasis, but the rather the emphasis to be free from Obsession free from uh, having something take over so that we're not really free in how we, in the choices we make about what we do, what we say, and even how we think. So we have many um, obsessions that we can't just simply put down and we're a little bit enslaved by them in the, in the sense that they kind of take over sometimes. I think all of you have had the experience of now, this third day of the retreat, of occasionally being uh, being taken over by your thinking, against your will, it wasn't your choice. You know, you actually chose something else, and lo and behold, you something took over. You know, and sometimes even if you have your thoughts, because they're really juicy, you can't put it down very easily. You wish you could shake it off, but you're not free in relationship to them. Um, so and it's not just thoughts, sometimes it's all kinds of desires or all kinds of hates that uh, prompt us to act in ways which sometimes is against our own best interest. There's inhibitions and fears that operate that keep us bound in a sense or in bondage. And so the freedom of the Buddha is a freedom from compulsion, freedom from being driven, freedom from uh, being pushed around by thoughts, by feelings, by emotions, by uh, intentions and desires, um, so that we can live a life of choice, so we can live a life where we're free in how we act in the world. How we act in the world in response to that freedom, how, what, what the freedom, the freedoms to do something that we want to do, those, that's partly left to you to discover in each situation what is appropriate. Um, you know, Buddhism doesn't say a lot about that, but it says a lot about how do you get free. What you do with your freedom is up to you. But what you do with your freedom then is informed by not being pushed around by greed, not be pushing around by hate, by fear and delusion. I liken it to that of uh, if there's two people who were spent years in jail together, in prison, uh, and they both were released on the same day their experience of release of being released from prison would be the same. The doors would open up and they no longer be kept from walking out and they'd walk out into the world. That experience is the same. They share that and they share no longer being in prison. But once they are out of the prison doors, how they live with their freedom might uh, be quite divergent, quite different. Their experience of freedom, you know, they, they meet a year later and they share notes. What's your experience of freedom like? And they say, well, you know, they have very different stories to tell. Same thing with spiritual freedom. The freedom from bondage might be very similar, but how a person experiences that freedom out in the world um, might look very different from one person to the next. So it becomes very important not to be trying to make yourself into a certain idea of what the right spiritual experience is. And in fact, in the the teachings of the Buddha, there seems to be a very strong reluctance to define what the ideal experience is. In fact, it's not defined as an experience. It's defined over and over again, the experience of enlightenment, by what is absent, what we're free from. And, so that's a little bit difficult to sometimes to get a sense of how, how important that is because sometimes they're so driven to have something, to have the attainment, to get it, and to get a badge. You know, Having spiritual badges is a good thing, right? And so now i have the right experience. I know that I'm right. But rather than having the right experience, it's having the right freedom from inhibitions and drivenness and all those things that so many ways is the, is the, the heart of what we're doing here. So part of, that, part of what helps the process of freedom is investigation, is to look more carefully. And last night, uh, Sharda mentioned um, beautifully the concept of respect as part of the practice. And I love uh, the word respect in, in relation to mindfulness because respect uh, in Latin, the root, means to look again. Respect. And this is partly what we're doing. We're respecting everything by giving it a second look. Let me look more carefully. What is going on here? And not settling for the habitual assumptions of what's happening, um, not settling for the first impression or the judgments of what's happening, but saying, let me look more deeply. What's really, what is this experience really? What's happening here? And something happens, uh, so two things can happen with investigation, with looking more carefully, more deeply. One is that you might see more clearly what's going on you might find out that things are not quite what you thought they were. And that's one of, the, one of the ways I'm hoping to challenge you in this talk tonight, when I talked about thoughts and emotions, is to um, somehow, and my hope, is to get you to be willing to look at the phenomena of thinking, and to look at your emotions in a new way, so that to break out of the mold of old habit of how you relate to it, how you think of it. So the first thing is you might see it in a new way. And this Shard also talked about the importance of we're not necessarily having a new experience, we're seeing in a new way when we do mindfulness. It means you don't have to get rid of anything, but you have to see it more clearly in a new way. The second thing that happens is that when you bring investigation to, some, to the inner landscape, when you stop and say, what is going on here? You're actually changing the local ecology. You know, if you take a local ecosystem and you add a new species, Uh, the whole ecosystem has to adopt accordingly. Shifts and changes. If you add, um, so if you add a new species to your mind, the whole mind has to change a little bit. And investigation is the new species. You know, we're adding investigation. And when you're investigating something, when you say, what is this? At that moment, you're not caught by the experience. Not lost in it. A little little bit, kind of like you're stepping back. And you're, you have enough presence of mind to say, what is this experience? As opposed to living in it, being kind of swirling around in it. You might be swirling around in thoughts, very hard to get out of, but if you, at some point you say, oh, you know, this is, you know, interesting. I spent my life swirling around thoughts and I'm always chasing after the thoughts themselves, the ideas, but what is it like for a human mind to be thinking? What does it feel like from the inside to be thinking? If I was a Martian anthropologist who entered into the bloodstream of a human being and was taking field notes of what the experience of thinking is like, what would that be like? When you you ask, what is this experience like? You're no longer in the grip of the thoughts as much as you were. And that makes a difference. That changes the ecology in some way. It changes the direction in which your mental world is going. It might not initially feel like a big change, but as you know, if, if you take two parallel lines and nudge one of them slightly to the right, initially it's not much, to, you know, they, they're not very far apart as they travel down the line. But over time, distance, the distance becomes greater and greater and greater. If you take a little bit and nudge your mind by asking the question, what is this? And stay there, what is this? It begins moving yourself to greater freedom just that question, what is this, you know, step back. Um, Sometimes I think about it, this whole process of mindfulness is kind of stepping back in a healthy way and and taking a a, a, a clear view of what is going on here. Let me experience it more for what it is directly as opposed to being in the fray. An image I like is that of, um, of, um, maybe some of you have been at some kind of gathering of people where they're all having, talking wildly and aggressively or loudly and they're all kind of talking to each other, over each other, maybe it's a terrible party or something, a political party and they're yelling and screaming or who knows what's going on, it's, it's a big kind of event. And you're in it also, you know, telling your point of view. But then for some, and they're all huddled over, you know, and trying to get their point in. And then you, you, you maybe you have to go to the bathroom. So you leave. And when you come back, they're still continuing, but when you come back, you're standing on the kind of the outside by the door and you're looking in. And you say, wow, they're really in it, but I'm not. But I can see it, clearly what it is. And then a more magic moment is that someone else who has stepped out of the fray, is not in it, and your eyes meet. And you kind of have this little glimmer of recognition. Yes, we're not caught like they are. So to step back and not be in it is the task of mindfulness. Uh, So how do we do this with thinking and emotions? This is where the four foundations of mindfulness come in. The four foundations of mindfulness are tools for that investigation, tools to begin breaking apart uh, thoughts and feelings, emotions, so we can look more carefully for what it is. Um, it's very interesting that the four foundations of mindfulness themselves do not mention emotions. Nowhere does it say this is how you pay attention. You're, you're mindful of emotions. It also says nothing about the mindfulness of thinking. Now, one conclusion would be that you know the Buddha didn't have any feelings, and that explains a lot of Buddhism. A, a lot of Buddhism. A lot of Buddhists. <laughs> You know, finally, understand. You know, they, they, don't, they don't have them. <laughs> um, but that's not really accurate. I mean, there's, there's, a, um, there's a lot of different emotions which are talked about in the suttas. The Buddha had them and experienced them and discusses them. But the category emotions is not talked about. That general... Because remember, the word emotions is a generalization. There, are, there is no emotion. There is anger, There's sadness, there's happiness, there's joy, there's particular things. But emotion is just a kind of very vague concept we have, umbrella concept that holds all these things together. There is no emotion per se, you know, in the abstract. Um, So what an emotion is, is a composite that's made up of different elements that come together. And modern psychologists will say this when they try to define what an emotion is, they usually define it in three or four different uh, uh, reference to three or four different things that are happening at the same time. Often emotions, part of what an emotion is, it, there's a physical expression, physical manifestation connected to that emotion. There's heat, there's tension, there's softening, there's uh, tightening, there's energy that moves through the body. There's many different things. So much so that it's generally it's very hard to know what emotion you're having if you don't feel something in the body that is part of it. So some modern psychological definitions of emotions include that there's a physical component to it that goes on. Sometimes definitions of what an emotion is, it includes uh, intentionality. There's something something we want, there's some response to something that goes on. Uh, uh, So if there's um, fear, there might be a pulling back. If there's anger, there might be a striking out. Um, If there is uh, love, there might be a moving towards. So there's kind of, kind of a response of movement for or against things that sometimes comes together. Definitions of emotions also includes a cognitive aspect. Emotions also include thoughts, a certain degree of thoughts and stories and ideas. And it's the weaving together of these three that somehow we hold in the modern West as something we call an emotion. But it's really, you know... Um, and so one of the reasons I wanted to bring to talk about thinking and emotions together is that it's, it's really hard to tease them apart sometimes. They come together. And in fact, I think in the ancient Buddhist world, they didn't separate out emotions and thinking the way that we do here in the West. Um, they didn't have the same split. We have kind of very hard, very hardened split between emotions and thinking. We even talk about that person's emotional and that person's in his head, you know, as being all, all in his thoughts. And we kind of make this kind of split. But I think actually, if you t- go and look more deeply, you don't see, it's very hard to tease these apart. They really operate together more often than not. So the world, emotions are composites. So it means we can look at, look for different aspects of what's happening as we are present for an emotion. And the Four Foundations of Mindfulness offers us four reference points, four frames of reference, four perspectives with which to look at our experience, so we can see it in new ways. So we can uh, uh, look more deeply and look beyond the habitual interpretations, habitual ideas of what's happening. So we can step back a little bit and see it anew. And, and uh, once you get a sense and know about the four foundations, know what they are, then in a relaxed way, you can, some, you can kind of see which of the four foundations would be useful to ground my attention in right now. Uh, sometimes it's the f- body, sometimes it's the feeling tone, sometimes it's the mind state, and sometimes it's this fourth category called the dharmas. And so part of the wisdom of practice is not just to be present for how things are, but to know what part of what, th- what is that's useful to pay attention to, because there's a lot to pay attention to in the present moment. So if you look at an emotion, uh, we can look at it from the perspective of the first foundation of mindfulness, uh, which is the foundation of the body. If we go within that foundation and look at the breath, you can. it's very interesting to study your breathing, uh, 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 the effect that your emotions have on your breathing. Different emotions affect breathing in different ways. And um, many different things, functioning of the mind, uh, changes our breathing. And to tune in and to start becoming sensitive to and familiar with how our breathing shifts and changes. How it's con- constricted and how the breath is held and how it gets loose and how sometimes what's held is down really low in the belly, sometimes it's high up in the chest, um, is a fascinating thing to become aware of. And then to breathe consciously or to br- or keep the breath going, fluid. Um, it's pretty common, what you probably some of you have done yoga, I don't know if Rebecca did this yet, but it's very common for yoga teachers to say, remember to breathe. Remember to breathe because people, you know, get so, you know, uh, zeroed in or trying so hard in the yoga poses. And you also do that, you know, with the mind. There's a classic exercise to do, which is to uh, fixate your eyes on some point in front of you and don't let it waver. Just really focus on that one point. And then notice how that affects your breathing. And most people will find that if you really hold your eyes, fixed in one point, the, uh, the, the, the chest area, the breathing there, tends to get a little bit locked up. So what we do with our mind, what we do with our attention, affects the breathing. And, um, and if we're not conscious of it, then it can stay, stay tight. If we become aware of it, and then relax a little bit and keep breathing mindfully, then it tends to lubricate the emotional life—it's a little bit harder in, in the mental life—it's a little bit harder. A little bit harder, maybe not. It's a little bit harder to get caught or stay caught if your breathing is fluid. If you're aware of your breathing, you stay fluid. So I call mindfulness of breathing the great lubricator. It keeps the lu- keeps us lubricated, so we don't get kind of rusty. So it's possible to pay attention to emotions by saying, "How is this affecting my breathing?" And as you tune into your breathing, um, that might in turn be a feedback loop back to your emotions. Some of the emotions that we get fixated and locked into might loosen up a little bit. Um, so a classic thing, you know, this is interesting to tell you, maybe. For those of you who get nervous about coming to what we call an interview with a teacher, uh, you know, you know, I'm sure some of you have done that. You know, what am I gonna say? And, I'm gonna be judged and I probably don't, didn't have the right experience and you know, anyway, who knows why you're nervous, but it's a nervous thing, or right? it's a big social event of the day. <laughs> um, so the first time I ever had an interview with a Buddhist teacher, it was a Zen teacher. I went into this little room to meet with him. I was so nervous, I couldn't speak. And he said, Gil, Breathe deeply, breathe deeply. So some of you get a little bit nervous coming to see us. I mean, you've all managed to speak, so I am have to say that. So maybe that's a little bit reassuring, hopefully reassuring, or maybe you're more willing to show up now, knowing that I, that's how it was for me. Um, so breathing, so then also, then there's mindfulness of the body more generally. And uh, so when you have an emotion, how is that emotion being experienced in the body? Is it in the belly? Is the belly tight, constricted? Is, it, um, is there butterflies there? Is it, the, tight, is it is the chest constricted? Or is the chest now gotten really soft and relaxed and open? Um, is it being held in the shoulders, in the jaws? Is it in the hands, in the arms? Some people brace themselves against life and you can actually feel very subtly in the musculatures of the arms, sometimes the legs, It's a tiny little movement of being braced, little fear, apprehension about everything. Um, Sometimes it can be felt in the eyes, in the jaws, in the face, in the neck, all over the body, the different emotions, different kinds of emotions tend to appear different places. And then it's possible then to bring bring the attention and do mindfulness of the body in that place. And this has two very important functions or helps in this process of freedom. One is, is it gets us out of the story that often is the cause of the emotion. Many times, not always, but many times emotions come with ideas, interpretations, stories about what's going on. And sometimes you can actually see that very clearly where you're sitting, meditating, minding your own business. You're peaceful and calm. And then, you know, unrequested comes... um, you know, a memory of your high school prom. And with that, sorry to bring up, remind you. (laughs) And with that, these intense emotions just come, like, explode up. Just one little thought, and boom, how could she have done that? You know, whatever it was, you know. And uh, and it's fascinating, the fire, that could just kind of suddenly explode. And you see, oh, I had that thought, and that generated all this energy inside of me. And sometimes emotions continue through time because we keep telling ourselves stories. And in fact, there was an amazing statistic or a study that I read. It's kind of unbelievable to me, but it was supposed supposed to be kind of a scientific study or something where they measured how long emotions last if they're not fueled. And there was something remarkable like I don't remember now. Maybe some of you remember the study. Um, But, you know, like they last a minute (laughs) or less. But what happens is that we get engaged. So I I, have the thought about the prom. Boom! All this energy and emotions and feelings. And then I have this more thoughts. Like, how could she have done that? And, you know, I need to find her and give her a piece of my mind. You know, and, and by that reminds me of this other person back in high school. And boy, that person really irritated me and, you know, and there are other people in the world like that and this, this is an injustice and someone has to do something about this. And, and it takes a while, you might spend 10 minutes on that road until you realize, you know, I can do something about all this. I think I can look at my mind. But it takes a while to get that there. So, so it's very easy to get pulled into the stories and the ideas. When we connect to the body and feel the emotion in the body, if we really feel, feel it and allow it and be with it, then um, we're not so caught in the story. We're not being pulled, not living in the story. We start, we're trying to live in the body. There's a big change. You might not be able to stop the story making, but you're not gonna feed it as much because your energy is not going in there. It's going into being present in your body. So it can be very helpful, very the other thing that's helpful with feeling the emotion in the body is that emotions are processes. Emotions aren't things. And as processes, what they want to do is they want to move. In fact, the word emotion, the Latin root of it means, uh, E means out and motion means motion. All emotions want to move out, do their minute, minute of fame. And, um, and they want to kind of move on. And, if we can feel the emotion in the body or, and to hold it in awareness, then um, it's kind of like we're giving room for it, breathing room for the emotion. And if we're not fueling it with a story as much, that gives it a chance to unwind, to move, to unfold, to let the process continue. And it's very respectful of emotions to get out of their way and allow them to move through us the way they want. Uh, resentment is frozen anger. So the idea is to get out of the way and let it, retur- let it return it just to anger and let the anger move through. Um, and so there's a lot of different emotions like that where we kind of lock get locked around them. And so to feel in the body and then relax. See if you can just feel where is it in the body? It's in my stomach, it's in my chest, it's in wherever. Feel it and then relax into it. Relax into how it is, as opposed to resist it and fight it and try to engineer it and fix it. Just relax into it. And this idea of relaxing into our experience, finding out how to relax into it is such an important one, partly because it'll, it's very respectful, and allows the inner movement, the processing to occur and to, to continue. The fact that you're gonna let your emotions free doesn't mean that it's gonna get better (laughs) automatically. Sometimes it's gonna get, in conventional language, worse. In Dharmic language, it's gonna get stronger. Uh, You could be sitting on bottled rage and what first you feel is a little bit of irritation. Oh, Gil said to open, relax into the irritation. So, okay, I'll relax. (laughs) And lo and behold, the resistance, the repression of the, you know, is let go of. And in that little bit of irritation that we relax into, boom, all that rage finally has a chance to surface. So all that rage bubbles up in a spirit rock in the retreat. Does that make you a bad Buddhist? If you're a good Buddhist, you should be kind and serene, wise. Shouldn't be filled with murderous rage. you you shouldn't be filled with red hot lust you shouldn't be filled with you know utter fear and dread you know that's not cool please don't think that way this is one of the most beautiful and safest and appropriate places in the world to let your emotions free while you don't move (laughs) The caveat is don't move. But then let it move, let the energies move through you. Don't, don't, don't inhibit, don't resist, don't judge. Don't, don't say this is, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm a bad Buddhist I am, please don't say that. Let it, trust it, if you can sit still and let that energy move through you and investigate, discover what's there and see what wants to move through you. See what wants to happen and don't move. And uh, so it's all allowed. And you might discover something very important about yourself. And this idea of not moving is not only not moving physically, there's an art here of when we investigate, we look more carefully is we're not analyzing. We're not like a detective who's kind of like engineering or engineer is kind of picking apart all the pieces and everything. How does it all work? And why is it all there? It's more like we're gazing upon it kindly and are still. Look kindly upon your emotions and then see if the mind, the the looking mind, the mind that can be present, let it be still. Not Not frozen, but kind of soft, let it be still. Kind of like, maybe like, if you're listening to a sound far in the distance, you would perhaps let your thinking mind be really quiet so you can hear it. Or if you go out here sometimes and you turn the bend in the trail and there's a deer and you get really still physically. You don't want to frighten it. It's so nice to see the deer, the deer's looking at you. And I think there's a tendency to let the thinking mind also get really quiet and still as part of that stillness and just being there with the deer, the shy deer. There's something very shy in our, in our minds, in our hearts that kind of needs us to be still just be there, be a very kind stillness. Relax, be there and let that what's shy show itself. What is it that's shy buried inside of your murderous rage? What is it that's shy that's there underneath your fear? What is it that's there to be still? And so it, it can be helped to use the body as the anchor to help with that stillness. Don't go in there and try to fix it or make it go away, whatever it might be. Go in there as if it has permission to be there forever. And you're respectfully just gonna hold it, be there. Some people find it helpful with difficult emotions to have an image that awareness is like soft, gentle hands that are cupped together and you come up from below and feel the emotion, just hold it there. Another image is, is difficult emotions is that awareness is like soft cotton balls and you just gently come up to, close to the fear. Let I me mean not too close or just the edge and just tap it lightly and then pull back. Tap it lightly, just feel a little bit and pull back. There's different images that can be helpful to so you. You can kind of be respectful and hold it and be for present. Feel it in the body. Just let it be, see what goes on in the body and see how it unfolds um, on its own. It's a very powerful, very beautiful. It's one of the great things I, I've learned to trust through doing mindfulness practice is trusting the body, trusting being present for the experience there. So that's a frame of reference, it's perspective with which to look at emotions to the frame of reference of how it's experienced in the body. The other frame of reference is to look at emotions through perspectives of how it's experienced in um, as a feeling tone, the second foundation. Because sometimes what we're reacting to <clears throat> is we're not reacting to the emotion itself, we're reacting to that it's unpleasant, or it's pleasant. And in fact, a lot of what people react to in life it's, uh, is whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Uh, I, th- I believe that there are amazingly sophisticated political philosophies that have their origin in someone who, di- who didn't like that unpleasant thing. And so their reaction, they built this whole world around how to get rid of it it would have been a lot easier if they just learned to relax. And um, it's very humbling sometimes to see that there's this amoeba-like response of going towards what's pleasant, away from what's unpleasant, operates on these sophisticated human beings. So sometimes it's interesting, now that I'm having this emotion, how is it? Is this a pleasant one or is it an unpleasant one? And how am I in relationship to that pleasant and unpleasant? Some people believe that if things are unpleasant, they're doing something wrong. Some people believe if things are unpleasant, they're a failure. If things are unpleasant, it means that I have to pull, up, pull, pull together all, before, all the armed forces to deal with it. Or some people think when things are pleasant, and only when it's pleasant, then have I succeeded in meditation? then my, right, my life is right. I'm a good person. These kinds of ideas are reactions to pleasant and unpleasant keep us in bondage. And so to, to look from the, at emotions from the perspective, is it pleasant or unpleasant, and how am I with that? So then relax. Can I relax with the unpleasant? Can I relax with the pleasant? If you're only free when things are pleasant, you're not really free an important part of the training of mindfulness is to learn how to be free in relationship to things which are unpleasant. And you can do that with emotions. The third foundation of mindfulness is the mental states. Some people uh, will kind of put the emotions into that category, but the mental state is the overall quality of the mind. And this is very interesting to look at. So when certain emotions, when you're in the grip of them, you can feel the mind or the mind state or your overall mood get very contracted. And other times you feel very expansive. Uh, you, you know, if, um, uh, you know, the w- beautiful sunny day and blue sky after some rain and it's warm and you come out and you feel kind of very expansive and the mind kind of expands out to be as big as the sky and everything's wonderful and fine and relaxed and wonderful. And you feel the state of the mind is very open and relaxed. And then you think about the, that girl at a prom. <laughs> and then, you know, and if you have enough state, enough presence of mind to investigate the state of your mind, you feel it's gotten really contracted and small. You're kind of all, you're claustrophobic, kind of working all this stuff. And part of this, the state of the mind is, you can be aware of is, is the mind now expanded or is it contracted? Or is the overall state of the mind colored? by a certain state? Is, is it colored by greed? And you know, everything is about desire, wanting. Or is it colored by aversion? Everything is about, you know, is what I don't like? Is it colored by delusion? It's very hard to see, delusion, but everything is kind of, you see things through a filter of strange interpretations. And, um, and is it possible to step back enough and see that the quality of the mind the mood is bigger than any particular dislike or like, but it's affecting whether, you know, my relationship to all the things in the world. So with an emotion, you can ask yourself, what's the state of the mind here? What's my overall state? And, um, and so when you have this wonderful Vipassana Romance, which happens sometimes in these retreats. Vipassana romance means you fall madly in love with someone here that you've never talked to, and you don't know anything about. Like when I spent three months in retreat fantasizing about this woman, and we had a long relationship, three months is a long time to, you know, to to develop the relationship, and get married, and be divorced. And so she didn't know anything about this, of course. And then at the end of the retreat, uh, first time I heard her speak, she had this very thick French accent. And I realized my whole fantasy was based on her being an American. And I realized I had no idea who this person was. And um, so, but you know, we have you know, fallen in love. So everything about this person is wonderful. Wow, you know, I like this, Matt, the socks, you know, everything. <laughs> and, um, but if you step back and look, you know, the overall, you know, what's the overall state of mind when I'm, you know, uh, I'm liking everything you know, there's this kind of rose-colored glass thing or a it can be So when you have an emotion, step back. And what's the quality of the mind? Is it expansive? Is it contracted? Is it scattered? Is it focused? Is it concentrated? It can be very helpful. It's a way of stepping back and not being caught in the midst of being in the grip of these things. And then we come to the the uh, fourth foundation which has to do with um, uh, investigating what's called the Dhammas, the, the processes that are going on. It's the ways we get caught and the ways we get free. And so one simple thing to investigate is uh, the, the word, the technical Buddhist word here is knots, R- K-N-O-T. Are we knotted up? Are we somehow entangled with the experience? So it's possible to see that when you have a certain emotion that you're entangled or it's entangled with you, you're caught. You're fixated by it. And then it's possible to investigate what is this fixation? What's the caughtness around this? Am I caught by by my judgments by it? My story making? Am I caught by whether it's pleasant or unpleasant? And what's it like to be caught? Does it feel like resistance and getting tight? Does it feel like reaching over and holding on? Um, is it, uh, does it, is it uh, represent kind of spinning of stories over and over and over again I can't let go of? What's the nature of that entanglement? As opposed to believing the emotion, as opposed to being the emotion, stepping back and and questioning, is there some attachment operating here? And some people see it as a personal insult to be be the suggestion that maybe you're attached. Uh, Especially with sometimes people with emotions, some people identify so strongly with their emotions, like their emotions is who they are. And so to say, well, there might be some attachment connected to the emotion is very frightening or very disturbing because, you know, who are they going to be if they're not, you know, attached to the emotion? Um, so this whole thing of looking at the four foundations of mindfulness using a framework is not to add anything to experience, but to begin teasing apart the component parts of it, so we can see more clearly what's there rather than seeing it through the usual habitual ways of how we want to see it. So the same thing with thinking. Uh, you can, when you, when you be mindful of thinking, you can sometimes notice how your thinking affects your breathing. A good, really good juicy thought. And you know, ten, or, or, thinking has like, th- think, th- think, thinking is not disembodied. Thinking like has, the thinking process has these tentacles that reach out into probably all the muscles of our body and all the nervous system in our body. And, you know, it's, it's everywhere. And so certain thoughts, you can feel how it reaches out and, you know, it, you know, it affects the musculature around the eyes, the muscles around uh, the jaws and the mouth, and even in the nose sometimes can get all, the, you know, in the eyebrows. Um, you can feel it in your shoulders, in your shoulder blades, in your chest, in your diaphragm, in all these places. And um, it's very interesting to see if you're really relaxed in your body one day, and then a good juicy thought comes up that catches you, then notice you know, where in your body it gets activated. Uh, and chances are you'll find something. So you can do the same investigation in the body. It's very helpful with thinking. If you find yourself compulsively thinking This is particularly useful. Or if you find yourself, you let go of a thought, but it comes right back. Don't just uh, keep letting go, then go look more carefully. What's happening here? And what's happening in the body? There might be some strong sense of pressure or tightness somewhere in the system that's connected to that thinking. And if you let go of the thoughts themselves, but don't relax the pressure or the tension, the tension and pressure is going to be like a factory that just pumps out the next thought. So if you can't find it difficult to let go of your thoughts, take your time and let yourself think and look around. Is there any tightness, pressure, contraction, strong energy somewhere? And then feel and hold that energy, feel that tension, that pressure. And, uh, and then if it's possible, relax it. If it's not possible to relax, then hold it with those soft cupped hands. Just hold that place in your body and be with it. And, and because if you can just be with the pressure attention, tension, uh, then it's a lot uh, less likely to spin out in thoughts. It's like you're sitting you know, at the source. If you're sitting at the source, you can catch it when it first arises. Um, and... Um, so sometimes I feel it, sometimes in the area around the upper part of my head, when I'm really caught in the grips of thinking, and I feel there's tightening or pressure there. And I call it my thinking muscle. And uh, so I'll, I'll relax that thinking muscle. And then it's less likely to get caught in those thoughts again. Um, and then you can look at the second foundation of mindfulness from that perspective. Are these thoughts pleasant or unpleasant? And am I reacting to the unpleasantness? Um, you know, uh, you know, in some way or other, or am I horrified by these kinds of thoughts? And so it's the relationship we have to how difficult these thoughts are, how terrible they are, (laughs) rather than the thoughts themselves, maybe. One of the great pieces of advice I got from my father when I was turned about 14, 13, 14, he pulled me aside and said, Gil, as you grow up, from time to time, you'll have bizarre thoughts. He said, Everyone has that. Don't worry about it. (laughs) And I didn't quite know what he meant. But soon enough I did. (laughs) And luckily I'd been warned. It's like, Oh, oh, just that. The other really good useful piece of advice I got around thinking, in meditation especially, was the instructions in meditation don't be bothered by your thoughts. Very, maybe it's difficult to do, but don't be bothered by your thoughts. Because if you're bothered by your thoughts, there's more pressure to think. You'll just spin out some more. Being bothered is more thinking. So don't be bothered, just, you know, be relaxed about it. Have a friendly attitude towards thinking mind. You're not at war with your think your thoughts, as much as some of you think you are. Don't have a war against them. Be, be, be kind, look upon, it's very interesting, just look upon the phenomena of thinking itself. Look, you look your thoughts right in the eye and be really still. Kindly look upon the thoughts directly and be still and see what happens. If you've never done that, if you're always batting them away, stop batting them away, just look at them kindly as if they can stay and see what happens. So it's possible to look at thinking from the second foundation. It's also possible to look at the third foundation, the state of the mind. It's, uh, some people report that when they're, when they're sitting in meditation, they're very calm and spacious and open, that there's a sense of openness and clarity in the mind, spaciousness in the mind, light. Even the, people even talk about their feeling of light, like, like uh, you know, as opposed to darkness in the mind, when, you know, when the mind is open and relaxed. And then you have this really juicy thought that you get contracted around. And if you pay attention to the difference, people sometimes report it's like darkness set in, it got dark, it got tight and narrow, claustrophobic. So you can feel the effect that thinking has, certain kinds of thoughts. Is it those thoughts help me be open? Or is those thoughts pulling me in? Or that is, is kind of thoughts kind of um, painting the world Rose-colored, is this color, is this painting it black? You know, what's the effect of these kinds of thoughts on an overall state? Some people believe their thoughts. They've never been told they don't have to. Somehow they have authority. We grant our thinking sometimes tremendous authority. Part of the process of mindfulness is to begin to reclaim the authority so the authority is not in your thoughts, but in you. So you can think all kinds of things, bizarre thoughts, whatever, and you don't have to pick them up. You say, oh, that's an interpretation. Who knows if that's true? I don't have to go. I don't have to go there. Just let it be. And then it's possible to look at thoughts from the perspective of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And uh, there's a lot to say in this area, but one of the interesting ways of looking again is the knot. How we're entangled with it. And one of the interesting investigations around the entanglement with thinking is to feel your way into the glue that keeps you yoked to the thinking. Because, you know, it's one thing to have thoughts. It's another thing how intensely involved we are with thoughts, how closely wedded we are to the thoughts, how much we're investing in the thoughts, um, how tight we're, close, how claustrophobic and tight up against them we are. Uh, how much energy is going into them, how loud they are. And, um, the, um, so what's the glue? What's the gravitational force? Uh, what is that? You know, it's, you know, we let go of a thought and it's like an elastic band is attached to them. thing you just come right back. You try to let go, boom, something pulls you right back into them. What is that glue? How does that operate? It's, um, don't, because there is a glue. In, in a simplistic Buddhist language, we call it attachment, but that, the word attachment often doesn't help so much. And this is where emotions come into play. Sometimes the glue is some emotional response, some emotional relationship to the idea as a story we have. And so what is that? Is there an emotion that's somehow in the mix that's keeping the thinking going, that's keeping it so, so, so fixated on it? Um, sometimes it's possible to feel between you and the ideas, the stories, the force that keeps you connected. And just hang there, feel that, just be with that. Don't make it a problem. Cup your hands, the metaphoric hands together and just hold it in your awareness, that glue, that force, that energy that seems to be there. And see what happens when you hold it tenderly that way over time. One of the uh, glues (coughs) that keeps us really tightly wedded to our thoughts and sometimes tightly wedded to our emotions is the ways in which our emotions and thoughts are connected to our self-concept to our self-identity and you can see this pretty easily with this idea that um we have a lot of i don't know about all of you i apologize for generalizing but most people have a lot of repetitive thoughts um most people have like the you know the top ten, two, you know, top three. Um, if you're lucky if you have top ten, then you vary it a little bit. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, see, they keep re- reappearing over and over and over again. And, um, and what's really amazing is that, is that uh, you can say the same thing to yourself, review the same conversation 500 times, and it's just as interesting <laughs> each time. I mean, if anybody else spoke to you that much, uh, repetitively, You'd wonder about their sanity, <laughs> and you'd beg them, you'd pay them, you'd threaten them to shut up. But you stay interested. Why? Chances are that most of the thoughts that you're caught up in are self-referential in nature. So you can look, you know, not, you can study. What are, are there patterns in what I think about? Them? I keep thinking about the same thing over and over again. And now is this just an abstract thought or is it somehow referring back to me in some way? What's in some self-concept, some self-concern, some way that's supposed to you know, judgment about myself, interpretation by myself, something. And so part of that glue has to do with self-concept, self-identity. So you can look at that and feel that and question it is it necessary to have that glue? Is it necessary to interpret things through the filter of a self-concept? I'm a bad meditator. You refer, that's self-referential. I'm a good meditator. That's self-referential. I'm wearing the wrong color socks for a Vipassana retreat. (laughs) That's self-referential. I'm taking too much food in the dining hall. That's self-referential. And it isn't just, you know, it isn't just self-referential in a matter-of-fact, you know, just easy-going way. Oh, you know, I've taken too much food, and I wonder what people around me think of me, and you know, you know nice and innocent. That's you know, that's a nice thought to have. And may I have more thoughts like that? Generally, it's not that light-handed. It's glue, where the elastic band is tight. It's like fear and concern and dread. You know, dining room is a dreadful place. You know, because what are people going to think about me if I, if I don't finish my food? I've had enough, but, you know, you know they'll think I'm, you know, whatever. And so, and so it's possible to study how intensely we get involved in self-referential activity. And look upon that kindly and be still. Hold it tenderly in those metaphoric, metaphoric hands of awareness. Don't make anything a problem. Don't make anything that goes on, any, any movement of your mind or your heart that goes on here, don't make it a problem. Be respectful of it. Look at it again. Hold it in your hands. Look on it kindly and be still. It's all okay. And when you feel it's not okay, hold that kindly and be still. Look at that n- not okayness be respectful of that and look at, be present for that. Let it unfold. Let the process unfold. Step back from the fray. Look upon things anew. Assume that that your old ways are old habits and old conditioning. Assume that. And then put a question mark behind all the conclusions you have, all the assumptions you have, all the ideas you have about what's going on. Put a question mark behind it. And then step back and say what's, you know, let me look more carefully here. And perhaps one way of looking more carefully is in a relaxed way, using the four foundations of mindfulness. Spend some time feeling this physically, resting in the body, relaxing into how it shows up physically. Spending some time in a relaxed way, as if you have all the time in the world, seeing is this pleasant or unpleasant. And how am I with that? Spending some time, if it's accessible, is not always so easy, but seeing if you can get a sense of the overall state of your mind. What's the quality of the mind? Is it tight, constricted? Is it open, expansive? Is it shut down? Is it available? Is it resistant overall? Is it welcoming? How is it? And then you can also spend some time and look, how... What's the nature of the entanglement, of the attachment, of the glue? What's my relationship to the emotion? What's my relationship to this thinking? And can I step back and see that more clearly? Not making anything a problem, make no relationship a problem. It's just something else to see and to look at and to look upon kindly and be still. So let's try that. Let's take a few minutes to regather ourselves I said a lot in this talk, in these couple of minutes here, consider if there was maybe one single thing in the talk, that would be useful for you to remember. What would that be? And then it's always good to relax. And you might consider the possibility of looking upon your experience kindly and being still.